Well, this morning we're going to be looking at another parable from Matthew 13. Uh, let's take our Bibles together and turn to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be in verse 47. It's a very short parable. Uh, I told uh, Zach Murphy that uh, it's going to be another shorter message because of all of the other things uh, that uh, we've observed here in worship today. And he told me that he liked it when I preached from parables, and I should do this more often. So uh, I thought that was funnier than you did, I guess. But we're going to look at another very short parable today. This parable is only four verses long. It's not a particularly difficult parable uh, to understand. We shouldn't have any trouble with it. Let's read from Matthew 13, uh, beginning in verse 47. All right? This is Jesus speaking, and he says again, The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which, when it was full, when the net was full, they drew to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Just four short verses, but considering the gravity of what Jesus has said there at the end of this parable, it's certainly something that we have to consider carefully. It's possible that you are here today and you are rather dismissive of hell. Perhaps you find the idea of hell distasteful and you just can't understand how a loving God could send anyone to a place like hell. I understand that. But actually, Jesus himself speaks of hell very often in the Gospels. And I think for us, the first thing that we ought to recognize in this passage, in this parable, is the reality of a place of eternal judgment. There is just no way to hear from Jesus without hearing about hell, even as we opened worship this morning with the story of Jesus healing the centurion's servant. When he commends the centurion's faith, he observes that there will be many Gentile people who will gather together in heaven to feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and many, quote-unquote, sons of the kingdom, men of Israel, who will be cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he's speaking eternally there. We call this place hell, but there are various other names used in the Bible in different places for it. Often a description of the place is used instead of a name for the place. A lake of fire, a furnace of fire, Hades. For our purposes this morning, although in the timing of these things unfolding, we might draw distinctions, but for our purpose, let's agree that these are descriptions of a place of judgment which a person who has not been saved by Jesus goes to when they die. When hell is spoken of in the Bible, it is almost always spoken of as a warning. And in these warnings, it is described as a place of suffering, that is the chief characteristic, followed by the second chief characteristic, and we should note it is eternal. It is never, not a single time in all of the Bible, pictured as a temporary thing. Whenever the time of suffering is described, the time is described as eternal. We shouldn't be tricked by anyone into thinking that the idea of an eternal hell is merely a New Testament Christian idea. 
The followers of Jesus did not make this up. Rather, this is in the Old Testament as well. There are many Jewish people today who claim to believe the Old Testament, who say that there is no hell in their faith. They are wrong. They are wrong. In fact, the warning of hell exists in the Old Testament. I'll just give a couple of examples. In Daniel, who is one of the great prophets of Israel in the Old Testament, chapter 12, verse 2, he speaks, At the end, or at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, speaking of those who have died, uh, shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Emphasis on the idea of everlasting in both descriptions. Daniel is speaking of the return of Jesus in the day of judgment. Notice there is a comparison between those who awake to everlasting life, which we speak of as heaven, and those who wake to everlasting contempt. These things are opposites. They are opposed to each other. Contempt is not merely derision, but it is the opposite of everlasting life. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, the prophet Isaiah is also speaking of the day of judgment when God has made the new heavens and the new earth, and he uses the Hebrew word for contempt, the same word that Daniel is using when he speaks of everlasting contempt. And in Isaiah, that word describes the corpses of men who have transgressed against the Lord, quote, for their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence, that's the word contempt, to all flesh. The word there, abhorrence, is the same word that Daniel is using. And in Isaiah, the idea of the worm not dying and the fire never ceasing, this is the idea of eternal suffering. So when Daniel speaks of some who will awake to everlasting life, he is speaking of what we often call heaven. And when he says there are others who will awake to everlasting contempt, he is speaking of what we often call hell, the suffering of unquenched fire and an eternally dying body. In fact, these become chief characteristics in the New Testament used to describe hell, fire, and the worm not dying, and the idea of persistent rot. Of course, things continue to things cease to rot when they no longer exist. A worm only feasts on something for so long, and then it no longer feasts on it anymore. The idea of a worm that doesn't die is the idea of eternal decay. It's the idea of prolonged suffering. Also in Daniel 12, there's a mention of this book. Notice those found written in the book will be delivered. This is echoed in the New Testament as well. Here in Revelation 20 verse 15 we read, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Another of these descriptions of a place of God's judgment. When thinking of a book, we should note there is a record kept by God. And God keeps good and fair records. There is a record kept by God of those who have believed on the Lord Jesus, who have placed their faith in God for salvation. These people shall be delivered. They shall be saved. They will experience everlasting life. And again, I emphasize, God keeps a good and fair record. You may not agree with what is in your HR file at work. You may not agree of your coaches or teachers or professors or your husband or your wife's evaluation. But God has kept a fair record. And those not accounted for in the book of life will be judged, and the judgment will be eternal. And I know that I'm not taking the time to preach thoroughly through all of these passages in Daniel, Isaiah, Revelation. I would encourage you to read these books for yourselves. 
to see that what I am saying truly is presented there, but our purpose in looking at them this morning is to understand that the Bible is remarkably consistent in what it says about the judgment that comes after death. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that those not in the kingdom of God will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day. There is no in-between. You are either in the kingdom of God or you are not in the kingdom of God. Those in the kingdom of God will have everlasting life and those not will depart into outer darkness where there is an unquenchable fire where the worm does not die, it continues to feast, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I could continue presenting you with many other passages from God's Word, but I think these are sufficient. No matter how much people might despise the idea of hell, no matter how distasteful the judgment of God is to the people of the world, God has spoken clearly to us in the Bible of what we will face when we die. He has spoken clearly that we may be warned. It is in God's character that we should know what to expect. You may plug your ears if you like. You may uh, shut your eyes like a small child. Have you ever played hide and seek with a small child? Have you ever done that before? And uh, you tell the child to go hide, and if they're small enough, at least my children, they cover their eyes like this. Because they think that if they can't see you, then you can't see them. And... You can do that, I suppose, but just like the child who plugs his ears or covers his eyes, eventually your eyes will open and what is real will still be real. What is true will still be true. The judgment of God is going to come upon the people of the world, whether our eyes are shut to it or not. So Jesus speaks very often of it. He would not be a good Savior if He did not speak very often of it. He is like a parent pleading with the child, open your eyes, son, open your eyes, open your eyes. See this for what it really is. One celebrity speaks of what it was like for them to recover from drug addiction and said this, recovery is an acceptance that your life is in shambles and you have to change it. There is something similar to that in this. Though your life might seem to be marked by pursuing pleasures and passions, in actuality, your life is in shambles, spiritually speaking, and you are headed toward eternal destruction apart from Christ. If you are a Christian, at some point in your life you have accepted this. You have observed the spiritual condition of your heart, you have observed the condition of your life and the sin before God, and you have recognized, my life is in shambles, spiritually speaking, and I need to be saved from God's judgment. Speaking of being saved, this is why God has sent His Son, Jesus, to be born into the world. This is uh, probably the most well-known verse in the world, right? Uh, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If the life is everlasting, so is the perishing. Apart from the reality of hell, the cross does not make sense to us, does it? It doesn't. If hell isn't real... If hell is not a legitimate danger to us, then what exactly is Jesus doing on the cross? What is He dying to save us from? Have you ever thought of that? We speak of Jesus as a Savior. But if not hell, if not the reality of it, then what do we need to be saved from? Do we need to be saved from poverty? 
Surely the Lord didn't need to die to save us from poverty. He could simply give us more. Do we need to be saved from immorality? He need not die. Let him write a philosophical book like the Plato's and the Aristotle's of the world. And we can observe his moral observances and think on them for ourselves. What exactly makes Jesus a savior instead of a tragedy? Well, we know that he has died because there must be a payment for our sin. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.15, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is the issue, our sin. And so Jesus told his disciples uh, from Luke 9.22, The Son of Man must suffer many things. He must, I must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Why? Because there must be a legitimate offering for sin. And a lamb to save a man is not enough. And a goat to save a man is not enough. Nor a pigeon to save the life of a man is not enough. All of these Old Testament sacrifices looked forward to the coming of God's Son, but they in and of themselves were never, ever, ever enough. They were looking forward by the providence of God to a provision that He would make. But the life of one perfect man, this offering God has accepted, and so Christ became that perfect man for us. This is what Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering, not all the many thousands, millions of offerings that the Old Testament Israelites had offered to God before, not all of the bulls, not all of the pigeons, not all of the goats, not all of the lambs, not by all of those. No, they all looked forward to the one. For by one offering, it says, He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. This is the preciousness of what Jesus has done. This is what he's come to save us from. Sin, death, hell. In this parable in Matthew 13, we see in verse 50, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. This, as bluntly as I can say it, is the end of those who do not care about what God has done at the cross. They do not believe in God's judgment. They are not interested in the sacrifice of God's Son. And they certainly have no intention of honoring this God with their lives or hearing from His Word and trying to obey Him. The word wailing means extreme crying or sobbing. This is a soul in hell that has seen far too late the error of shutting his eyes to God's warnings. This is a person at the height of anguish, longing for an end to suffering that will not come. A deep emotional reaction to the recognition that the lights will never come on and relief is not to be found, ever. This is why, 
This distress is why Jesus suffered the humiliation of the cross. A public scourging, a beating, a hanging, the nakedness, the suffocation, and the mutilation of God's Son. This is why Jesus endured all of it. Because as horrifying as the cross was for the sinless Son of God, hell represents a similar horror to us. There is an inherent wrongness when you think of Jesus on the cross. This is an innocent man. This is a sinless man. This is a man who has done no wrong. And there is an inherent sense of wrongness when you think about what is happening at the cross. And that sense of wrongness is meant to reflect the wrongness of our sin before a God who has created us and given us life only to be rejected and neglected and disposed of while we pursue our own passions and pleasures to the great expense of what it has cost him. There is an inherent wrongness in both. In this parable, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a fishing net. What a thing to compare the kingdom of heaven to, a fishing net. Now, I have never fished with a net. I might have better luck than fishing with the rod. Uh, I'm not a great fisherman. Um, I can't say I put a lot of time into it, but I enjoy fishing. Never done it this way. What they would do, these fishermen in the Sea of Galilee, is they would take a net and they would weigh down the net. And they would cast it to the bottom of the lake. And as the boat moved along the sea, it would drag along the bottom. They would catch all sorts of things in the net. But these were commercial fishermen. They were not fishing like me. We're not just catching things for the sake of catching things. They are catching things for the sake of selling things. And they didn't want all kinds of stuff because all kinds of stuff doesn't sell commercially. Instead, they wanted the fish that would be profitable. They wanted, if you will, the good fish. And so it says in verse 48, When the net was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and they gathered the good into vessels but threw the bad away. Would have been a very relatable thing to Jesus' disciples and to all those whom he's speaking to along the Sea of Galilee. If they were not fishermen themselves, surely there was a stink and a smell of fish as you'd go along the shore of the sea and you would see all the fishermen out crafting, out doing their work and their profession, and there would be an obvious separation. This would have been a daily experience for the people of the region. And can you imagine the good fish being taken to market, which we presume most of the people's diet consisted heavily of around that region, and they're eating regularly, and they know what a good fish is, and the stinking smell of the rotting stuff that was to be taken back out to sea. Verse 49 says, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And we're not speaking of fish any longer. The wicked and the just. Who is going to hell and who is going to heaven? And how do you know for sure? Say you're sitting here today and you have heard God's warning and you're not like so many people in the world trying to cover your eyes rather than look into the face of it. How does one know that he or she is going to heaven? Well, I think we can hear from God's word on it 
One of Jesus' disciples, John, wrote just a very few verses that I'd like to consider this morning as we close. So this is 1 John chapter 5. John is going to help us. In fact, John tells us in verse 13 of 1 John chapter 5 that this is exactly why he is writing. He writes, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. What I've written, I've written so that you do not have to wonder. You can know. Listen to what I've said. Read what I have written. If you read and understand these things, you can know that you have eternal life, that you are not going to hell, that you will not face God's wrath when you die. If you're listening today and you have wondered in your life, how do I know if I'm going to heaven? How can I be sure? Well, John is going to tell us in 1 John 5. We'll only need to look at the first three verses. It's actually incredibly concise. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves Him, whom He begot, loves Him who is begotten of Him. Speaking of Jesus, the Son, and God the Father. So, we must believe in Jesus. We must believe what the Bible says about Him, all of it. We must love Jesus. That's in this verse. We must love God for what He's done in Jesus. And if you do, there is assurance in that. People, if you're taking notes this morning, people who are going to heaven believe in Jesus and love God. That's verse 1. People who are going to heaven, if you're trying to ask myself, how do I know me sitting here today, how do I know that I'm going to heaven when I die? People who are going to heaven believe in Jesus and they love God. Verse 2 continues. By this we know the children of God. So, if we love God, we also love the children of God. Loving God is immediately connected, in John's writing here, to loving God's people. God's people are called the church. There are many other places where Jesus makes this very clear to us in the Bible. You cannot love God and not love his children. You must love and serve God's people. And John, the apostle, who had presided over the explosive growth of the church, makes this abundantly clear, not only here, but in other chapters in what he's writing too. If you do not love and serve God's people the way God's word commands, you should not have great confidence that you are going to heaven. Why? Because people who are going to heaven love the children of God. We keep reading. Verse 2 continues. When we love God and keep His commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. That is directly from the Lord Jesus Himself, by the way. John didn't make that up. That's not his own idea. That wasn't just breathed to Him out of nowhere by the Holy Spirit. Jesus in John 14, 15 says, If you love Me, you will obey My commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Love is shown by our obedience. By our obedience. God does not want us to say, I love Jesus in my own way. Or, I love God's people on my own terms. No. If you love Jesus, you love Him on His terms. Because you believe Again, you believe that he is right. You believe that his instructions are right, that they are good. 
You don't, you don't, if you love Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, you believe he is the perfect son of God and that what he says is good for us. It is right for us. And so we want to obey him out of love because we want to be like him. We want to be right. We want to know his blessing in our lives. And you love Jesus' people in the way that God's word teaches you to love them because... You believe the Bible is right. You believe God's word is right, that it is profitable, that it is good. People who are going to heaven love Jesus and his people by obeying Jesus and applying God's word to their lives submissively. And then verse 3 continues. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In this world, we will be tempted to sin and we will fail, but the person who loves God by seeking to obey Him, this person, for them, God's commands will not be a terrible burden. Loving God will not be a terrible burden. Loving God's people will not be a terrible, regretful burden. For the unbeliever, this sounds awful. This sounds terrible. I don't want to be told how to live my life. I don't want to be told who to love. I don't want to be told how to live. I don't want to observe all that religious stuff. I don't want to give money to religious things. I don't want to give time to religious ministries. I don't want to do any of that. To the unbeliever, this is a horrible burden. Not so for the person who is born again. They have overcome the way of life that is common to the people in this world. And how have they done it? We are told by faith. I believe in Jesus' faith. I believe what the Bible says has come from God, faith. I have put my faith in it. God has given me new spiritual life. He is at work at me, in me as a person. So I have overcome the desires of this world... Though I still fail sometimes, I continue to turn away from my sin. I do not find God's word to be a terrible burden for me because of my faith. So, how can I know I am going to heaven? Well, here is the summary. Do you believe what the Bible says about Jesus? Do you truly believe what the Bible says about Jesus? Do you love him? Do you love the church? Do you love God's people? That's what I mean by the church. I don't mean this building. I don't mean this location. I mean the children of God who are called the church. Do you love them? Is your love for God and his people marked by your obedience? I appreciate the struggle of people looking at their lives thoughtfully and observing their sinfulness and considering, man, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm going to heaven when I die. I don't know. I appreciate that. I was sharing with someone last week after the service. When I was 23, I had a very similar struggle. Um, I remember listening to a question and answer uh, session on the internet from one 
well-known pastor, and some man stood up and asked the exact question that I'd been wrestling with for a long time. He said, is it normal for a Christian to doubt his salvation? And that's how I felt. I mean, I've been in the church a long time, and I asked myself, is it normal? And this guy stood up and asked the exact question. I felt like it was God speaking to me that I had stumbled upon this question and answer, where they're asking like 30 questions, and some guy stood up and asked that. And I was on pins and needles, and it was all for a very short answer. And the answer was, it is normal for a worldly Christian to doubt his salvation because of all the things we've just said. A worldly Christian is not, is not trying to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. A worldly Christian is not trying to love God's people in the church. A worldly Christian is not marked by their great obedience to what God is saying. No, a worldly Christian is a Christian who passes the first test. I believe what the Bible says about Jesus, and after that, everything starts to fall apart. And I appreciated the pastor who didn't look that man in the eye and say, well, you're not going to heaven when you die. He didn't say that, because how would he know? How would that pastor know? And I've had people come up to me earnestly asking me, hey, do you think I'm a Christian? <laughs> I mean, do you believe the gospel? Yes. What else am I to judge here? <laughs> But I appreciated him also not telling him, man, quit worrying about it. You've got nothing to, you have nothing to stress about. You have nothing to think about it. You know, you believe in the things the Bible says about Jesus. Quit, just, just quit worrying about these things. Didn't say that either. He spoke right to the heart of who I was as a 23-year-old young man. Because I was a worldly Christian. Someone who believed what the Bible said about Jesus. But these other questions I did not do so well. And there was doubt. Well, John wants you to know that God has no desire for his people to live with fear and doubt concerning salvation. God does not want me to live that way. And he doesn't want you to live that way. And if you're dealing with those feelings, you need to settle it because it's not from God. God has no desire to leave us as if we were a Muslim person dangling always on the edge of whether we're doing enough good works to make it into heaven when we meet Allah. That is not the God that we serve. No, John says, I have written these things to you, 1 John 5, 13, so you may know that you have everlasting life. And what is so difficult? What is so burdensome about this? What is so difficult for the born-again Christian about this? What is so difficult about loving God? What is so difficult about loving his people? What is so burdensome about trying to obey him? Is God not merciful when we fail? Do we not have a great high priest who knows our struggle? Do we not serve a God who's ready to embrace us when we repent? What is so difficult about this? You do not need to beat yourself and to batter yourself about salvation, but nor should you give yourself a green check mark if in fact you know the answers to these questions are not favorable in your life. Repent, obey his word, trust him and serve him. Let's pray. Father, I hope that your people have heard the challenge from your son from this parable today, the great warning of a dragnet and a sorting 
That will happen on the day of judgment. But I pray, Father, that your people have been encouraged, perhaps even corrected, I don't know, by what your apostle John has delivered to us from you. For that's what it is to be an apostle, to deliver us a message from our great high priest and king. Father, I ask that you will do the work of spiritual birth and spiritual renewal in our lives, whichever is necessary. That if we are not Christian people today, that we will be converted as we look to you in faith. And that if we are Christian people today, that we will be convinced and no longer live our lives in fear and doubt, but will live faithfully loving you and serving you in obedience with your word. Father, bless our time together as we go out from this place and help us to honor you as we go about our business this week. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.